think we all have these kind of light bulb moments when we realize something needs to change or we want to do something. But that moment, that urge kind of came to me out of nowhere. I'm not quite sure where it came from, but it made me realize that we have a choice, that we can, we can challenge ourselves, we can overcome adversity in our own lives. And it was that end point, that pinnacle of life. Nothing else mattered. I didn't care whether, you know, whether that was all I did in my life. I just had to summit Everest. Hello and welcome to the Common Ground podcast. In a time of ecological and climate crisis, of rising inequality and social injustice, it can all seem just a little bit overwhelming. We get it. And that's why Common Ground brings you the stories of those driven by passion, who are striving fiercely to make our common home better for all who live here. Each week, we'll hear from a new guest who'll tell us all about the issue that spurred them to take action to help inspire you to create positive and meaningful change in the world. I'm your host, Chess Fernley, geographer, environmentalist and concerned global citizen. Before we start this week's episode, I just wanted to thank you all once again for the support and love we've received on the podcast launch. We've been featured in the new and noteworthy section in science and we made it to number 56, but most importantly, we've seen many messages coming through about how Immy's, Josh's and Cal's experiences and their episodes have inspired you, which is exactly what I wanted to achieve. And I know my guest this week, Alex Stanaforth, will have that impact too. Alex is an author, an adventurer, an overcomer of huge personal adversity. He's an endurance athlete, a fundraiser. He's attempted Everest not once, but twice. And most recently, he's become the director of the soon-to-be charity Mind Over Mountains. I really enjoyed our conversation as we discussed everything from overcoming the noise of childhood bullies to his own struggles with negotiating his physical and mental health to the journey to his two Everest attempts and why he's so passionate about getting people out into nature. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Alex Stanaforth. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here, you know, thank you for having me. There are so many strings to your bow. So I just thought instead of me doing a, a hash job at trying to explain a little bit about your background, whether in your own words, whether you just wanted to give our listeners a little bit of an understanding about your background and your journey so far. Yeah, well, people do say I've done a lot and to me it never feels like enough. But um, I guess the best way to describe me is um, an adventurer, an athlete, an author and a speaker. Um, my journey kind of started pretty unextraordinarily. I was brought up in Chester. Um, I'm 24 now, but uh, I lived there all my life until last year when I now moved to Kendall. So I'm surrounded by the hills in the Lake District. And prior to that, I'd never been the sort to enjoy adventure or sport. And uh, I had a few kind of challenges in my early years. Um, nothing compared to some, but were quite unsettling at the time. So I had epilepsy when I was about nine years old. That was then the catalyst for other challenges, such as stammering. I was relentlessly bullied all the way through school, angiety and panic attacks, and just the general low self-confidence that these things bring. Um, I was always quite academic, but uh, I wasn't active or sporty at all. But then about 14 years old, I discovered the outdoors and suddenly found a way to fight back and to prove myself and all the bullies wrong. And that became my way to overcome these life challenges and basically set me on a whole new path, which has brought me to where I am today. So 
I guess in a nutshell, um, my life is about overcoming personal challenges through outdoor challenges. And now I'm very lucky to try and use that journey to inspire and help other people to, to overcome theirs. It's a fantastic story and a journey that you've been on. And if I'm right, there is a specific moment when you're quite young where things do set you on this path. I wanted, if you wanted to just touch on that a little bit more. There was kind of two, because I think we all have these kind of light bulb moments when we realise something needs to change or we want to do something. Um, I think the, the first one was when I was on holiday in Turkey, when I went paragliding, which is quite an extreme sport. I mean, when you've never really pushed your, push your comfort zone in your life before, to take the decision to suddenly jump off a 7,000 foot mountain doesn't spring to mind. But that moment, that urge kind of came to me out of nowhere. I'm not quite sure where it came from, but it made me realize that we have a choice that we can, we can challenge ourselves. We can overcome adversity in our own lives. And I think that decision gave me this victory mindset instead of this victim mindset that, that I'd always been in. And then I wanted to keep on challenging myself and started looking for more outdoor things I could do and just found this passion, this confidence I never had before. So that was kind of one of them. Um, and shortly afterwards, it was only a matter of months, maybe a year or so, I was then invited hill walking in the Lake District from a friend. That walk in the Lake District um, started like, you know, kind of asking, are we there yet? You know, how long am I going to be? That typical response. <laughs> At some point asking myself, where is Mount Everest? I didn't know anything about it. It just, question came to mind. And I kind of came home and as you do, went on Google, you know, how do I climb Mount Everest? Um, <laughs> I just, just became obsessed and fascinated with the concept of climbing the world's highest peak. And so naturally just decided there and then that one day I was going to stand on top of the world. Now, I never could have imagined at 14 that four years later I'd actually be at Everest Base Camp about to try and attempt that. So I think those are the two moments really. Um, but I think prior to that, the foundation was in adversity and needing to find something to change really. I love the story because I love that these moments are kind of accidental. They're not planned. They're just going about your everyday lives. And then suddenly you you're set on this path, which as you say, takes you some, some amazing journeys, this path towards a life of adventure after that moment, when you're 14 and you've been on this wonderful holiday and you've obviously got that vision of wanting to climb Mount Everest in your mind. But I guess at 14, you're not thinking like this is going to happen. I'm going to start planning now. What, what's the journey over those next four years before your, before your next summit, uh, your first summit attempt? Um, you know, my parents gave me a great start in life. I was very lucky to, to, to get everything I needed. I was an, you know, like an, only, an only child, so, uh, you know, I was given the best of things. But unlike a lot of young, you know, young adventurers and Everest climbers, my parents weren't just going to sign me a check. You know, I was going to have to kind of find my own way. And I think when... The Everest idea came to mind it wasn't like I started to tell the world I just kind of told my parents kind of kind of as we tell them everything that we're going to you know we're going to get rich or a business or do all these things um I never really thought anything of it but um I think there was this f fascination that I then started to kind of just find out more about actually how this was possible and wanting to fuel this kind of new drive and obsession with a, a venture now I've always been very much a high achiever, very self-critical, because I think all the bullying made my self-esteem very much that, that way. And very obsessive about small details. Um, 
I think the, the anxiety and panic attacks made me very particular about those things when I was younger. And so I think I remember going online and coming across a rock climbing instructor who was based in Keswick where I'd been on holiday, who'd climbed Everest. I never rock climbed, so I thought, I want to try this. I want to meet somebody who's done this. And then I think it was then that I realised that there were mere mortals like me that could, could do this. And there was this kind of goosebumpy feeling that I've never had with anything else. Of just when I thought about myself on top of the world, it just, it, it, it was enough to, to drive me. And I've not had that with anything quite the same yet since. Um, it was that end point, that pinnacle of life. Nothing else mattered. I didn't care whether, you know, whether that was all I did in my life. I just had to summit Everest. So I think I slowly started to, to sort of research, you know, what, what I'd have to do, how much I'd have to raise, what I'd have to climb beforehand. And Tim gave me a, a good idea of, of what I need to do. So I just started to take the steps. Um, that year I did the Free Peaks Challenge when I was 16. That was, you know, my biggest thing today because I organised it myself. I did it on my own. Uh, obviously, 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 not the driving because I couldn't drive at that point. Um, and it just kind of grew my confidence to believe more and more was possible. You're kind of constantly raising that bar. And then the year afterwards, Mont Blanc was my first step into like big kind of bigger mountains. Now Mont Blanc is still only just over half the height, height of Everest. Um, but I think I just started to ask people to literally Facebook message all the climbers and say, hi there, you've climbed Everest, I want to, this is my dream. And I think because I was always quite mature for my age, um, I was able to approach them seriously and politely. Um, and yeah, to get everything I needed. And I think it just in, in, incited me even more. And then you kind, of get, you kind of get the momentum. You know, I, after Mont Blanc, it just fueled the fire. Um, I raised the money for that washing pots in my local pub because it was kind of <laughs> affordable. But Everest cost about, well, at the time, it cost about 45,000 US dollars just for the trip. So that was when I started speaking to other Everest climbers more. And I think the, the key thing from it was people that were just like me, young Everest climbers that were kind of 19 or 20 when they tried, had a similar background, but they managed to get there through sponsorship. That was when the light bulb moment realized, actually, this is possible. It just depends on being willing to commit myself and make the steps. So it was a long, long process, but I think the real turning point was actually the end of 2012. After Mont Blanc, I carried the, carried the, the Olympic torch in Chester. So I had this massive buzz of excitement through the year. But then that, that started to fade away. I got injured. I couldn't run. I couldn't cycle. I couldn't do all these outdoor things that I discovered I loved doing. And so I just, I, I lost my purpose again. Yeah. Sank into depression and, you know, an eating disorder and just this horrible, horrible few months. Um, and I needed to get myself out of that. I needed something to give me a reason to get out of bed again. And Everest was kind of bubbling away, but it didn't have a deadline. And so I set the deadline. I knew what I had to do. I just had to commit. And I think commitment is the reason why most of us don't achieve our goals because we find excuses or life gets in the way. Um, I realized that if I climbed Everest in 2014, I'd be one of the youngest, the second youngest Britain, which would give me a massive advantage in fundraising. It didn't give me a lot of time to do the other peaks that I needed to do the, to get more serious altitude experience. But I think when you commit, you just kind of tell yourself you're going to do whatever it takes. Yeah. And that kind of led me there in a very short time. There's often this feeling, people often say like you've got a mountain in front of you, 
and for you, you you literally did have a mountain in front of you and I, I really loved that idea of just breaking it down into steps just rather than considering the whole mountain at once thinking right what is what is it that I've got to do what what is the first step that would get me there and breaking it down like that rather than saying right I'm going to go climb Everest I guess that perspective really helps yeah for sure and at the time it was kind of the way I had to do it you have to jump through the hoops and um you would you've got to keep keep the end goal in mind but um that that whole strategy is something that I use even today and I've kind of got more practice at using and many adventurers and athletes use that um you know in big races or big challenges and it's incredibly useful even in times like these which are so challenging because if you focus on something that's so far away it can be pretty overwhelming it can stop you in your tracks it's quite paralyzing Mm. um even you know in say marathons you know i don't think crikey i've got under 20 miles of this pace i think right i'll get to that next mile then i'll think about it or i'll think about halfway then a half then you know then a 30 miles i'm always working with a smaller number or i've had challenges in scotland when i've been cold wet scared alone exhausted i had to break it down to something as simple as having a pack of fudge in my pocket and every kilometre having a, having a piece. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about those tiny, tiny milestones. So I, I wonder if you could just take us then to Everest and, you know, you've not only attempted it once, you've attempted it twice and both times been faced with huge adversity. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, so 2014 was my first attempt. Uh, I was 18, I think, on the first time. And I went with Tim, who was that first rock climbing guide who I met. Yeah, everything went really well. I managed to get the sponsorship, which took about a year to get together. It was kind of the gap year that never ended. <laughs> and, and then went out there in March 2014. So, crikey, six years ago. Um, and it all started well. You know, we, we, we walked into base camp, which takes about three weeks. It's about a two-month trip in total. But the day before we got to base camp, there was a massive avalanche in the Kumpu Icefall above base camp. So we had to pack up and go home um, without even stepping foot on Everest. But obviously very lucky to be home safe, you know, 16 climbers should have died. So after the initial disappointment and right, what on earth do I do now? Um, I realized I had to go back. I had to use this time productively to focus on training, to be more prepared, to raise more money. And very, you know, very fortunately I found the support, even more support I needed and then um, 2015 went back with Tim for a second attempt. This time started much better. You know, it all kind of seemed to work out in a positive way. And then this time we were on the, well, we were on the mountain. Uh, we'd left base camp about five o'clock one morning on the day the earthquake hit Nepal. So obviously things went pretty badly. Um, the earthquake triggered a massive avalanche into base camp of unprecedented scale which sadly killed 22 people. And we got hit by a big powder avalanche on the mountain ourselves. Now, we were in the safest place of all. You know, we escaped unharmed. But we had no idea that, obviously, base camp down below had been wiped out pretty much. And uh, we were trapped on the mountain for two days, eventually flying down by helicopter um, to, yeah, carnage, devastation. And sadly, three of our team, who we'd seen that morning, you know, we're caught, caught up in that so that was the end of that really we you know we obviously couldn't climb we went 
went home about a week later. Um, but obviously very, very grateful to be back home safe when you see a beautiful country just destroyed, really. Obviously, so much work and preparation goes into something like this, but you then realise it is such a sort of personal, personal tragedy, a human loss. What's going through your mind when you're in these situations? And then what are your feelings like when you've had that time to you're away from the mountain you're you're a week later you know considering that you've prepared for so long what are those feelings and and how do you deal how do you deal with them question i think first year round i I mean obviously i was younger i was probably less mature to deal with it and it was a bit of resentment a bit of bitterness which i didn't really have a right to do but it's all part of the process you've just got to learn to move through that faster um and as always through life, it's been, and well, and even now in these recent times, it's okay, how do I fight back? How do I make an opportunity out of this adversity? And um, and I think that's now my kind of default response. But um, I think if I just throw myself into something else straight away, something positive uh, was really useful. Um, but after the earthquake, I mean, obviously that was of a different scale, something that most people don't experience, especially at such a young age. I think initially you're in shock, you know. Um, I think that first week you're kind of in survival mode. You know, you're just focusing on what you need to do. You're not really processing, you know, you don't really process it. We're just trying to help in any way we can. Um, you know, walking around base camp, salvaging things and trying to do what we can. But then it wasn't till I was about a week later, I was on the, on the plane home, that in the airport, it just suddenly overwhelmed me, this guilt and... I was like literally just stood there in tears in the airport on my own. Um, and when you get home, you've got this bittersweetness of like, you don't really want to be anywhere. You know, your family are relieved and I'm relieved to be home and safe, but you kind of got this overhanging guilt of why them, why not me? You know, I should have been there. Um, this wasn't meant to happen. And then all these things are going through your head. And I think at the time, yeah, it was horrible. It was the, the worst I'd ever been. Um, as you said, everyone's happy to see you, but you just don't want to be anywhere. Yeah. Um, exercise has always saved me. You know, getting on, get on runs, and get on the bike again um, helps me to process, especially in these, you know, the, you know, these last weeks we've just had. But I think what really got me out of that whole period of guilt and feeling sorry for myself was um, speaking to a friend who'd been in the army. You know, he'd he'd experienced some really dark, difficult times at a young age, and I remember him saying to me, "You know, you've just got to grow from this." It wasn't easy, you know, at the end of that year, I, again, when it all kind of died down, I sank it back into a really low point. But what really got me through that was just focusing on doing good. Yeah. You know, and I've, I've always raised money for charity through my challenges, but I was speaking a lot about it. I, was, I started writing my first book, uh, Icefall, and essentially just using it to raise money for the people that had died. You know, I did a challenge called Everesting, where you cycle the same height of Everest in a day, just up and down a hill. Wow. Um, set, set up a fundraising event called Walk from Nepal and yeah that seemed the best way to do, do things really you know if I've had my life spared so I need to use it to do some good. That was something that I was going to touch upon next was obviously you came back from Nepal and you raised an incredible amount of money for the reconstruction effort there and you have raised is it something I was reading 85,000 pounds with the name to raise two million pounds for, for good causes throughout your life 
what is what I was going to ask is you know what drives that mission but obviously it's sort of like having this sense of purpose and having a sense of I can do something about this yeah I think I think it's, it's exactly that I mean indirectly and directly I think I think I've raised over about over eighty thousand pounds that's not all from my challenges but the things I've organized as well you know for people who've done the hard work um but for a while I started to have this kind of goal of how much I want to raise and to be honest I've kind of lost that goal because somebody said to me actually it was that the you know and this sounds really vain but at the Pride of Britain Awards in 2017 um I was a finalist for the fundraiser of the year and the guy who won it a guy called Jake Coates the most humble incredible guy I've met I remember him saying to me at the awards ceremony down in London um it's not how much you raise it's about the difference you make which is so true I mean he, yeah. he'd raise a huge amount for sure but I think that's when I start, start stopped chasing the numbers so much. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, I'd like to raise a significant amount, but I think I want to see the difference being made. But I think what, I mean, what's kind of drove me, originally, I, I'd, I'd done stuff for charity. Uh, it felt like the right thing to do. Um, I was interested a lot in animals and the outdoors and conservation when I was younger. My grandma really got me into that. And then as I got older, it was cancer, because, you know, you know, that affected me my auntie and my granddad when I was well, about 2012. Um, so I think it's, you know, we all have different causes we care about and that changes through life. Um, and doing the, these challenges for a cause gave them a lot more reason. It made them a lot less about me and a, a lot more about making a difference at the same time. And it, and it did. Um, but I think ultimately after Everest, that was just taken up a notch because I realized that there was a sense of, I've been spared, so I need to make the biggest, the biggest difference I can. And that really motivated me to do even more. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's what's driven me since. But there was there's always been this underlying need and want to, you know, support causes because otherwise adventures and challenges become a bit of a self-centered thing. Yeah. And that's something that I actually wanted to circle back on because I know that you've done a lot in terms of raising money for um, charities like mine. I want to speak about mental health because it plays such a large role in your story and everybody has mental health but I think you, your story you've been a lot more conscious of the impact of your mental health from quite a young age could you expand on this and and talk about how that sort of shaped and framed everything you've done yeah absolutely I think uh again in recent years it's become the focus of my fundraising because I think as I said there's so many causes out there I think to make the biggest impact, you've got to focus on one or one or two missions. And after Nepal, you know, I felt that I made the difference there that I wanted to. I mean, obviously they, they have a massive task to rebuild, but I feel like I've done what I wanted to do there. And in that time, it's kind of evolved. The mental health and mental ill health has become a much bigger challenge of my own life and awareness of other people around me. Hence, I wanted to go into that area. Um, I think... It was, as I said, it's always been there from a young age, you know, having those early, those early childhood struggles made me very prone to it. You know, having anxiety and panic attacks at such a young age where even, you know, even having a seizure in McDonald's and the smell of fast food could cause a panic attack. Yeah. Trying to deal with that at a young age isn't, it's quite damaging. Um, and I think it made me very prone to this kind of peaks and troughs that when I didn't, when I couldn't, find that escape in challenges or the outdoors or find a purpose in life. I think purpose is, 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 is everything. Um, that's when I struggled because I felt, you know, you feel like you're not achieving anything. You're not here to do anything and you feel a bit dispensable. 
and after Everest even more so because you realize just how fragile life really is and having this kind of pressure on myself to to make it count um and so that's when the kind of peaks and troughs of life became a lot worse than they had before i think after that first bout that i had after the injury 2012 um you kind of you never really goes away you just learn to manage it and for me that's always through challenges and through running and cycling and and you know 95% of the time things are pretty good everybody has bad days you know we're all human um but the problem is is when sudden big events happen or you get injured then you if you don't have other mechanisms in place or coping mechanisms um then things get brought out you know brought out in the open yeah um I think when I realized that, when I realized that I was on this cycle of, of, you know, good and bad periods that, um, you know, I needed to get some help with that. And after that bad time, after Everest 2015, um, in a really, really low period where even, you know, getting out of bed just to run a 5k was, was like my Everest for the third time. Um, I kind of, I tried to deal with that through the outdoors and it wasn't enough. So I went to get help, but I think at that point I'd, I'd always tried to solve it myself as I had done through the outdoors from a young age. But I realized that actually this wasn't something I could manage on my own and that was, that was okay. Um, but I think cause I was this adventurer, this athlete, I was, I expected myself to be kind of, you know, mentally tough and to be able to overcome this like everything else. Yeah. What really opened my eyes was that it took me longer to get the help I needed than it did to cycle around the whole of the UK. Wow. It took like probably two or three months, I think, in total from first GP appointment to actually getting the proper regular support. Now, my GP was fantastic. You know, you can't blame them. But I think there's just so much demand on so little resources. So I think that was when I wanted to try and fill that gap, you know, and also to help other young men to, to get the help that I put off for so long, especially in eating disorders, because they're such a taboo and stigma, more so than depression and anxiety, which I had no problem talking about that um and I, I very easily did um but i think especially in athletes and young men there's such a risk that i wanted to do something for that and that's when i took on this this whole new direction and uh my last challenge my last big challenge in 2017 was climb the uk which was climbing to the highest point of all 100 uk counties walking running cycling um about 5,000 miles in 72 days that was for young minds uk Again, just because there's not enough help available, so to try and fill that gap. But also using it to talk about my story. You know, that was the first year I'd publicly spoken about an eating disorder. People knew everything else about me, but that was always the elephant in the room, really. Yeah, that made me realise I had this other opportunity and, and role, really, to, to be an advocate and talk about it. I'm now speaking more in the mental health space as well and writing about it. So that's kind of become a different area of my life really. I really wanted to talk about male mental health in particular. Why is it that mental health isn't discussed amongst men or, or is it being discussed amongst men? I'm just trying to sort of trying mm. to understand what the situation is and what well women should be doing and what men can be doing in order to support and facilitate whatever needs to be done question and i don't really know the answer i think it's still a work in progress and it's been different for me because i'm not in the kind of typical male social circle you know i don't go to the pub i don't like team sports i just mm. run right and speak and do my own thing um 
I don't, I don't, I don't particularly have the kind of typical alpha male social circle where speaking about mental health would be probably more challenging. Um, but when I have been able to speak about it to, you know, friends who are male, um, there is always, always this kind of uncomfortable feeling in the room um, that I've not had that with depression or anxiety. I don't know what it is about, I think eating disorders in particular are a different scenario because I think they're lagging behind in the whole stigma and the whole change in society. I think we are seeing improvements. I think there's so many new initiatives and amazing, you know, books and campaigns and things that are really changing that. Um, and I've definitely seen and felt it's easier to talk about it. But eating disorders in particular, I think have been forgotten a little bit. Um, and what inspired me to actually talk about it was reading an article in The Guardian by a marathoner called Tom Fairbrother, who set up a campaign called uh, Train Brave, which is fantastic, about athletes and the risk of eating disorders. And the fact that he'd had such a positive response is what inspired me to talk about mine. And I think it just shows really that we need more people like that speaking out, sharing their stories. It sounds very simple, but I think there are people like me that for many, many years felt alone and just need that spark to read something to think actually I'm not alone because one person sharing their story becomes another person and then we have this multiplier effect mm. and I saw that both in men and women because I when I posted my blog um I saw a friend who was an international athlete you know she ran um at quite a high level and she then posted a blog on Facebook speaking about her struggles for the first time Mm. And I messaged her saying, you know, well, we're well done and always here to chat about it because you feel like you're the, you're the only one in the world. Mm. And she'd had several of her friends or girls speaking to her saying, well, I've suffered with that. I thought I was the only one. So I think in the first, first case, speaking about these things, um, having the platform to share our stories is, is really important. I'm still trying to, it's still fairly new to me. I'm still trying to work it out. But I think ultimately um, they are seen as a female issue. Mm. and I think regardless of gender I think oh, the best thing that we can do is um is to, to, for people not to be uncomfortable about sharing these things and providing the safe space not to try and fix people because that's the worst thing just trying to to understand or at least just give them the space to, to you know to vent and share it no definitely it's um, really important advice and I also think there's something in one person that sharing their story and powering others to feel comfortable or more comfortable to to tell theirs and i i think it's hugely important i really do commend you for the the braveness because I, I don't think that could have been easy feeling you know the first time that you shared your story about your eating disorder god no i mean to be honest it was probably the scariest thing i've done i'll be honest it really was um i still can't pinpoint why you know i remember going to my other kind of one of those like moments where enough was enough you know I, my, my family didn't know about it because these things are very secretive i think that's something where people can help is almost having the courage to ask people if they're okay or you know not to find them out but having the, you know having the courage just to check on people i think goes a long way um but yeah going to my gp at that moment i remember just breaking down in tears because it's caused so much pain and grief and worry for such a long time but the first thing well, I don't regret it. I mean, every time you do speak about it, it becomes easier and easier. And that's the thing to bear in mind is that now I can talk about it in front of 500 people. Whereas, you know, a few months earlier or a year earlier, it would have been the worst nightmare. Yeah. It's important to bear that in mind. Um, but no, it's not easy. Crikey, that's why it stayed a secret for a few years. And that's why I think 
the more comfortable we can make people about it, the less people will have to wait and suffer. I wanted to touch upon mental health, being outdoors, adventure, and the link between these themes, because obviously nature does have a powerful effect on our mental well-being. From your experiences of being outside and from undertaking your adventures, can you pinpoint what that is? I wish I could. Um, <laughs> I've, I, I mean, my last book was trying to find in it, find it in a kind of a nuggets, but um, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, definitely, I think for me, the outdoors has been probably the best antidepressant I've ever tried, and I have tried them. Um, and I think we've seen just in the last few weeks in lockdown has made us appreciate just how important being active and being outside is because we're not designed to be indoors. We've, you know, we've realized just how lucky we are. And I think, I hope people don't take that as a given in the future. But this is then the next chapter of my journey, really, which is quite exciting is that, um, you know, I've always found the power of the outdoors from that early age and for, for coping through life since. And uh, it is the most natural, powerful resource we have to stay mentally and physically well. I think it's what we're designed to do. And I think, you know, we need, we need that purpose, you know, not just pills. I mean, it obviously has all the obvious benefits, but it's so much more than just the fresh air. I mean, it's the connection. You know, if you're walking in a group of people, if you're on the bike with people, if you're doing park run, you've got that kind of human connection. Even just running past somebody in a smile or a hello might be the only interaction somebody has all day. And that can completely change your, you know, your whole frame of mind. It gives you that incentive. You know, it gives you that accountability to do something positive. You know, if you stay in bed all day or stay at home on your laptop, you're just going to feel rubbish. Actually deciding no to put your shoes on or to put, get on the bike and go. You're making a positive decision, taking control. And I've never regretted or felt bad about going outside for doing a hill walk or a run or a cycle. You know, mm -hmm. Not everybody enjoys exercise, but it's, it's so versatile. Even if it's just walking the dog or walking for, you know, walking half an hour a day. I mean, in my difficult times the outdoors didn't always make me feel better you know sometimes you can just ruminate on things even more but I would have felt worse if I hadn't and I think in nature even in winter in the dark rainy days you always find something positive you kind of find hope you find calm and I think you find perspective I think nature has that effect of reminding us of what's important and reminding us that there's better things to come um it gives us an escape, you know, it might not solve our problems, but I think when we take a step away from them and come back, either 10 minutes, um, I don't know how, but it, it solves a lot of, a lot of stuff. Magical. And yeah, it's, I think it's magic really. I think. Yeah. And I know that that is the foundation or the founding principles for your new charity, which is a hugely exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely. So this year, we, you know, this year we've just started Mind Over Mountains, uh, which is currently registered as a as a community interest company, uh, but will soon be a charity, hopefully. And basically, it's all about helping people to experience the same benefits that I have. Um, we do, you know, outdoor residential events, combining hill walking, uh, uh, mindfulness, uh, NLP, which is kind of well, which is uh, neuro linguistic programming, which is a form of coaching. Uh, meditation inspirational speakers to hear from people that have been there and got through it um, and just taking people away in a group of like-minded people where they can share what they need to do you know realize that they're not alone and get away from technology you know we stay in places with no wi-fi so people <laughs> can properly connect with each other rather than everything else 
so that's what we do and basically obviously everything's been put on hold because of the current situation uh, we're looking for ways that we can help people after this um, because inevitably there's going to be a mental health crisis coming um, but basically we just want to create these spirit experiences because like me in the hills all the years ago one one hill walk can be life-changing yeah. we can give those skills to as many people as possible yeah i definitely i completely agree with that and i, I know that there was a sort of a big um launch challenge that was planned yeah so i should be doing it right now actually um i should have been coming to you know towards the, you know, the end of that in some physical shape of, uh, or another um so yeah my next kind of challenge which is going to happen it's just a case of when um is attempt to actually run the national free peaks so since everest I've, I've i've been more interested in challenges close to home and so my challenge is to run um ben nevis scarfell pike and snowden and the entire distance in between them uh, hopefully in eight days which is about 450 miles total um the equivalent of two marathons a day so it's probably it is undoubtedly the hardest thing i've ever taken on as it should be but i think this is what we need to do we need to stretch the bar and it's a great opportunity to launch a whole message in the campaign really and try and get my you know try and take you know you know the whole charity to new, quite literally new heights bringing things to um a close i know we've touched on so many really important themes today i i wanted to ask you what would your top tips be for somebody who either wants to go on their own adventure or is looking to overcome their own you know, mountain, their own Everest, what would you say to them? For me, adventure has been a way to overcome personal challenges, but there's gonna be a lot of people that, I've got a lot of serious, you know, serious issues that they've got to deal with first to be able to go up and do that. Um, I think typically for anybody wanting to go on an adventure, be in, whether that's abroad or in the UK or something they've always wanted to do, um, I think my advice would be to ask for help, you know, speak to people who've been it, learn from them what you can do and what you can improve on. Set a deadline because I think if it's one of those things that maybe may happen, life will get in the way. It may, you know, you're less, you're less likely to put the steps in place. Uh, urgency is a great motivator. I mean, obviously be, you know, be realistic. I mean, okay, I can't talk because I decided to climb <laughs> Everest 18 months after having any client Mont Blanc um, but I was committed to put the steps in place I think commitment is everything so set a date set a deadline and then you'll work out the steps to get there um, don't be afraid of failure because actually failure for me has turned out to be a very positive thing by looking for the opportunities in a first time so that's probably that's the first tips that come to mind um, I mean in my books and speaking I'll probably come up with more but that's off the top of my head um, I think secondly, for overcoming challenges and adversity, I think it's a similar, it's a similar approach really. But I think um, even on an everyday basis, it's to focus on the things you can control. But even in these sort of, you know, even in these times now, there is no point focusing on how long it's going to last or what's going to happen or what this might mean or, or do. To keep moving forwards, we've just got to focus on the things we can do to make progress. You know, it's focusing on on the things that we can influence, um, I think is important to stay in control. Um, I, think, I, think, I think secondly, you know, there's so much uncertainty around this, but um, to know that there is always another peak after the troughs, you know, no matter how bad it gets, a lot can change in a day. 
and um, I think if in doubt, just get on a run and get or get outside, and you'll find the answers. If if not, I think failure is never an end outcome unless we decide it to be. Um, and you know, Everest was completely out of my my hands. I mean, I had no no choice but to fail. However, I think turning that negative into a positive outcome, I think is is, is in its own right a success. So I think for me, redefining what success means is important. But I think everybody has their own Everest, you know, and I think if we focus on the things that we can't control, then we're often going to fail a lot more often. Um, but I think success is, is a process, you know, not the outcome. Uh, Alex Danisball, thank you so much for your time today. No, it's been great to have me on and, you know, you know I hope everyone's enjoyed the episode. Thank you. So what did you think? Huge props to Alex for all he has achieved and there were some hugely important takeaways I think from Alex's episode, things that really resonated with me. The idea that when you're faced with a problem that seems insurmountable, really just trying to break that down into small achievable steps. And on the mental health front, having the courage to reach out and ask if someone's okay you know, not to shy away from these questions. And I know we also covered some quite intense topics there too, like Alex's struggle with his eating disorder. And so for anybody who feels like they might be struggling with their mental health or you're worried about how you're feeling, I just wanted to point you in the direction of the fabulous charity that Alex mentioned, Young Minds. They provide free 24-7 support across the UK All you need to do is text YM to 85258. Let us know your takeaways as well as your thoughts, feedback and guest suggestions over our Common Ground Co. Instagram page. So until next week, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening and see you soon.